0: on the mountains Oh, that was great, wasn't it? Man, what a great song. Um, These are the days of Elijah for this last week, okay? Um, Next week, we will be done with the series on Elijah. And we've given a number of messages, I think seven in all, and this brings us to the conclusion of this life of the ancient prophet of Israel, Elijah, we saw Elijah burst onto the scene, sort of came out of nowhere, stepped into the king's palace, made a declaration about drought, and a confident um, call that Yahweh was the king above all kings, the Lord above all lords, the God above all gods. And we've traced Elijah's journey over the last few weeks, and now we're coming to the end of his journey. And the end of his journey is unique. It's not intended to be looked at as normative. Elijah is one of only two people we have recorded in scripture who didn't die. Um, Enoch is his counterpart in Genesis chapter 5, but Elijah's ending is as strange as his life in many ways. It comes to an abrupt end where he's taken, spoiler alert, in a chariot of fire up to heaven. And as we read his story, his story conjures up all sorts of questions in our life, at least in my life questions about what heaven is gonna be like. And I think there's this sort of transcendent human longing to figure out what's next. So we have people who have these supposed experiences of heaven and they write books. Um, a guy by the name of Don Piper wrote a book, 90 Minutes in Heaven, in which he was um, supposedly in a car accident and died and for 90 minutes spent some time in heaven, came back and made millions of dollars and wrote a book off of it. Um, I'm not saying it didn't happen, um, Um, it very well he very well may have had that experience Um, uh, you have um, in heaven is for real you have this four-year-old kid who goes to heaven uh, dies and goes to heaven and experiences things and learns things that he really shouldn't have been able to learn in any other way and his dad wrote a book and um, 90 minutes in heaven has sold over 6 million copies heaven is for real has sold over 12 million copies since it came out in 2010 now I tell you this not to say you should go buy one of these books to figure out what heaven's like. Um, I'm not saying they're wrong, but I'm just saying somebody's experience is never a great foundation to build your theology off of. So I think, I think we should go to the scriptures and see what the scriptures have to say about Heaven. If you want to read an interesting book, pick up one of those, but then really hold it up to see what the scriptures say. We have questions about heaven, don't we? Which is why you can write a book about going there and sell millions and millions and millions of copies of it. We have this keen sense, don't we? That any time a life ends... Even if someone's really old and they've lived decades and they've lived a full, good, beautiful life and we go to their memorial, there's this sort of transcendent feeling, isn't there, that this was never supposed to happen. Like it was never supposed to end. It was too sacred, too beautiful, too good to have an end. And there's something inside of every single one of us, even if we don't believe in an afterlife, we hope that there is one. There's something about that that just calls to the human soul. We were created. You were created to live forever. I can remember being a youth group student, sitting in youth group, and hearing our youth pastor describe heaven. And I don't know if you've had a similar experience, but I was sitting there going, I'm not sure I want to go there. Like, he described heaven, and it seemed way more boring than earth. Right? And it was like, you know, that we'll be sort of these like angelic figures and we'll be sitting on a cloud and playing the harp. And at that point in time, I was like, I really like Dave Matthews. I'm not really. I'm not really a harp guy. I still like Dave Matthews way more than I like the harp. But we have these questions, don't we? What happens after we die? Where do we go? Do we turn into some sort of like angelic being? Or what are we going to do in heaven? Are we just going to sing 24-7? I mean, I like singing as much as the next guy, depending on who the next guy is. But I I like singing. I just don't know if I want to do it 24-7 for all of eternity. I'd like to mix it up a little bit. Who's with me? Right? Here's another question people often have. Will I remember things or people in heaven? Or will going to heaven just be like the great mind eraser? Right? Where I get there and it's just like starting over. Right? You ever wondered some of these questions? When we're in heaven, will we be able to see what's going on on earth? And then you have some well-intentioned people that pat you on the back and go, heaven's going to be so great. You're not going to care what's going on on earth. You know, the only problem with that is the Bible. Do you know that? Like, so some of these questions that we have, the Bible actually speaks to, but I just want, we lean in for a moment. I want you to know that I I sense on a pastoral, a deep pastoral level that this message today is far more than just a cognitive ascent to try to figure out what heaven's going to be like so that we can sort of like turn some cosmic divine key and get it all figured out. Because my guess is that you've said goodbye to somebody that you love, or maybe you've gotten a diagnosis from a doctor that says it's not looking good. Or maybe like the person that came up to me after the service last Sunday and gave me a hug and said, I'm so glad you're talking about heaven because I'm getting older. And I thought to myself, I'd like to meet the Benjamin Button that's getting younger, right? Like, where, who who is, um, we're all getting older. It's all getting closer for every single one of us. And so we have these questions These questions that ever since the dawn of creation, people have been questioning, people have been asking, what's it it like? What's it like on the other side? What's it like in the afterlife? Every culture, every religion, every civilization has in some way tried to answer that question. And we're going to do our best to answer it today. And I want you to hear me. I want you to hear me. I'm standing up here today. I'm preaching. My goal is to open the scriptures and say, to the best of my ability, here's what the scriptures seem to say. But if anybody tells you they have this subject nailed, run the other way. I'm doing my best. If you think this is a terrible message, fine. I'm doing my best. And Elijah's gonna be our guide along the way. If you have your Bible, Turn to 2 Kings chapter 2, and you'll need it this morning because we're going to look at two sort of chunks of text, and neither of them are going to be on the screen. They're too long. But Elijah's coming to the end of his life. And like I said, the end of his life is as sort of clandestine, as as strange as the rest of his life. And he's going to be our guide to show us a little bit of what heaven's like. First, 2 Kings chapter 2. You there? Wonderful. It says this, and when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven in a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. Elijah said to Elisha, stay here, the Lord has sent me to Bethel. But Elisha said, as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. And the company of prophets at Bethel came out to Elisha and asked, do you know that the Lord is going to take your master from you today? Yes, I know, Elisha replied. So be quiet. Now, just quick time out. I'm not sure why he says be quiet. I'm, I'm not exactly sure what's going on. It may be that he wants Elijah to keep teaching and keep talking. So he's like, you guys need to shut your mouth. We want to hear from him, not you. It might also be that he's just drawn or gotten so close to Elijah that for them, this is just sort of something that's going to happen. For him, it's pain. We don't know. But either way, he says, shh, in the name of God, shut your mouth. Then he replied. It says, and then Elijah said, verse 4, stay here, Elisha. The Lord has sent me To Jericho. See, you sort of see this pattern. And he said, as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So they went to Jericho. And then what happens? You guessed it. The company of prophets of Jericho went up to Elisha and asked him, do you know that the Lord is going to take your master from you today? Yes, I know, he said. Shut your mouth. Okay. Or something like that. Verse 6. And Elijah said to him, stay here. The Lord has sent me to the Jordan. What do you think he's going to do? You guessed it. He's going with them. The Lord has sent me to the Jordan. And he replied, As surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So the two of them walked on. Fifty men from the company of the prophets went and stood at a distance, facing the place where Elijah and Elisha had stopped at the Jordan. Elijah took his cloak, rolled it up, and struck the water with it. And the water divided to the right and to the left. And the two of them crossed over on dry ground. Now the passage goes on to say that these schools of prophets, these prophets who were there, the same prophets who said, hey Elijah, do you know Elisha's getting taken to heaven today? And he said, yes, these prophets that are telling him what's going to happen, they beg Elisha, after Elijah is taken to heaven, let's go look for him. He's got to be around somewhere. Isn't it interesting? It was shocking to them that God actually did what he said he was going to do. They were just dumbfounded by it. Let's go look for him. And Elisha finally says, fine, go look for him. You're not going to find it, but if it'll make you feel better, go for it. And they do. And they come back and they said, couldn't find him. And Elijah's like, really? I'm shocked. I'm shocked. I think that's how we feel about heaven sometimes, is it's it's just so good. We go, there's no way. We, we, we sort of believe it, but in the back of our mind, we go, it's not going to be that good. We, we can't hope that much in it. It's going to be elusive. This passage is fascinating to me, because we could do a message about Elijah passing on the faith, and about how important it is to train up the people in your life, whether it's in a ministry that you're involved in, or a business that you're involved in, or in a family, to train up somebody to hand the torch off to, to carry it when you're no longer here, which will happen someday. We could do a message on that, but I think there's something else going on. I think there's another reason that Elijah travels to these specific places. If you were to draw a map, here's the way it would look. He begins in Gilgal, and then he heads west, away from where he's actually going to end up, in order to go to Bethel. And then he comes back, just a short distance, 15 miles or so, where he came from in Jericho. And then he finally crosses the Jordan, which was pretty close to where he started. So why in the world, why in the world is Elijah taking this little walking tour before he leaves this earth? Well, as you might have guessed, each one of these places is of massive importance in the history of Israel. See, if you were to go and look, Gilgal was the place that after traveling in the desert for 40 years, wandering in the desert for 40 years... The nation of Israel comes to the brink of the Jordan River. It's parted miraculously. Does that sound familiar? Okay. So we're retelling the story. They cross over the Jordan and they stop in Gilgal. And Gilgal is the place where they reinstate circumcision and where they re-say to God, God, we want to be your people. We're entering back into covenant relationship with you. And God welcomes them back. Gilgal is a place of new beginnings. Gilgal is a place of grace. Gilgal is a place of God's mercy. And he goes on from there and he travels to Bethel or Bethel, house of God. It's the place where Jacob, one of the great patriarchs of the faith, who, who later would become known as Israel, it's the place where he encounters God. Angels ascending and descending on a ladder and where he realizes this whole earth, this whole world is bathed in God's presence. Bethel's a place of prayer. It's a place of God's presence with his people he goes back to Jericho. Jericho, you may know, is the place of the first battle that Israel fights in the promised land. It's the place where they go straight at the enemy. It's the place where they look evil in the face, and it's also the place where they see that God is giving them victory. They finally have to put their faith to the test after 40 years of wandering to see, God, are you going to be faithful and are you going to be good to us, even in this place? And then finally, he gets to the Jordan River. The Jordan is this place of promise. Think of the nation of Israel, millions of them looking onto the other side, west, looking west, as they looked at the land that God had promised to give to them. But as you look in the way that Elijah's looking, it's the place of destiny. It's a place where God promised he would take him and eventually take him home. So before he gets taken to heaven, it's fascinating. Elijah gets this tour of God's faithfulness on earth. God's grace, new beginnings. God's presence, this whole world bathed in his glory. The battle that we often face in life. How many of you are facing some sort of battle? Right. Yeah. And the promise, the victory that God will be good on his word. And the promise that you and I hold on to. Elijah is physically recounting the faithfulness of Yahweh throughout the history of his people. Before God takes Elijah into his destiny, he wants to recount history. He's saying to Elijah, you've seen glimpses, you've seen shadows, you've seen winks and hints and nods of what you're stepping into. My faithfulness, Elijah, is laying a foundation that you're going to experience face-to-face in just a few moments, but Elijah, before you part the stream, I want you to step back into the story, because I want you to remember where you're heading. I've been gracious I've been present, I've been good, I've given victory, I've been with you the whole way. And the reality is, friends, that for Elijah and for you and I, confidence in our destiny is grounded in God's faithfulness throughout history. The God that Elijah is getting prepared to meet face-to-face is no different than the God that's carried this nation throughout the generations, It's the same God. There's continuity, catch this, there's continuity between heaven and earth. But we often get this story wrong. If if you hear somebody talk about what it means to follow Jesus, or even maybe you hear people sometimes give a gospel presentation, and here's the way that they start, they, 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 they sort of tell the story that we're in. They tell the story that we're in is that uh, um, we're sinful, God's holy, um, you want to go to heaven, you don't want to go to hell, right? And so oftentimes, the sort of the juxtaposition between heaven is, is hell. The counterpart of heaven is hell in a lot of people's stories. Do you know where the counterpart to heaven being hell isn't found? In the Bible. In the Bible. I mean, just start on page one. In the beginning, God created heaven and hell. That's not what he says. That's not what the story's about. In the beginning, God created heaven and earth. Right. And juxtaposed all throughout the scriptures is heaven and earth. And originally in Genesis 1 and 2, God creates heaven and earth to be overlapping, interlocking places where God walks with Adam and Eve and his presence was with them in the garden. And sin fractures that, where God's presence is now here, but we have a hard time encountering him. Yes? Yes. Yeah, we have a hard time encountering him. And the narrative of Scripture, the narrative of Scripture is not about whether or not you go to heaven or whether or not you go to hell. The narrative of Scripture is ultimately about God reuniting heaven and earth, and to do so, he needs to get the hell out of it. (laughs) Hell over here. You can quote me on that. That's what the story is about. The mission of God is to reconcile heaven and earth from the destructive power of hell that's tearing it apart, and people only end up in hell if they're unwilling to let go of their evil, of their pride, of their violence. They'll let go of that in order to enter God's kingdom. So before Elijah goes to heaven, to God's space, God reminds him of the way that he's been at work all throughout history. Um, Here's the image that came to mind. It's sort of like playing the band's album as you're on the way to see them in concert. You're going, we're about to step into it. Grace, presence, battle, victory, promise, and destiny. And it's exactly where God leads Elijah to. Verse 9. And when they'd crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Tell me, what can I do for you before I'm taken away? Let me inherit a double portion of your spirit, Elijah replied. You've asked a difficult thing, Elijah said, yet if you see me when I'm taken away from you, it will be yours, otherwise it will not. How's that for an answer? He's basically saying, I don't get to decide that, but here's how you can know if God's going to give it to you. If you see me taken away, he said yes. Verse 11. As they were walking along and talking together, suddenly a chariot of fire and horses of fire appeared and separated the two of them, and Elijah went to heaven in a whirlwind. Elisha saw this and cried out, my father, my father, the chariots and the horsemen of Israel, and Elisha saw him no more. And then he took hold of his garment and he tore it in two. Elisha then picked up Elijah's cloak that had fallen from him and he went back and he stood on the bank of the Jordan and he took the cloak that had fallen from Elijah and he struck the water with it. Where now is the Lord, the God of Elijah, he asked. And when he struck the water with it, it divided right from the left. And here's my insertion. And he went, yes, yes. And crossed through it. Anybody else wish there was a few more details? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, the people there were just as confused, right? The prophets, they go and they run after Elijah to try to find him. We don't get a lot of information. Here's a few things you can take away from it, though. There's this word suddenly that's in there. Like it happens really quickly, right before their eyes. Suddenly, he's gone in an instant. Second, there was this like separation between Elijah and Elisha, as if to say they were were both on their own journeys, and God had the timing that was right for both of them. They weren't going at this together. Nobody does. And then finally, here's what you see, is that Elijah is escorted there. His journey to heaven isn't a journey that he makes on his own. And none of our journeys to heaven will be a journey that we make on our own. We, we will all get an escort there. Our, our escort's name is Jesus. He's also our advocate that says, he's with me or she's with me. He's escorted there. He doesn't go there alone. And some might think we don't get a lot of information about heaven. And certainly there's no like one passage that we can go to to say, now this, this really explains it. But there are things that pop up all throughout the scriptures that help us understand a little bit better what this place that we call heaven is going to be like. Before we go there, I need to dispel one myth that I think haunts us a little bit and actually clouds our ability to see what heaven is actually going to be like. Because most of us think of heaven as just sort of one phase or one place, place that we go. It's actually two. The first phase is what we would call heaven. The place where people who've died in the Lord are right now. The place Elijah is right now. It's a very real place that exists in a spiritual realm. People there have spiritual bodies. But not physical bodies. Not like the ones that you and I have. That's phase one. But there will be a day, friends, when Jesus comes back... To judge and resurrect all people. And you and I will live for all of eternity, not in heaven. As N.T. Wright, a famous New Testament theologian, quipped one time He said, Heaven is great, but it's not the end of the world. Your destiny is not heaven, your destiny is resurrection. That's your destiny. So you go and you read through the ancient creeds, none of them talk about heaven. They all talk about resurrection. That, let me be as clear as I can, resurrection was the hope of the early church. That when they're giving evangelistic sermons in the book of Acts, do you know how many times heaven is, 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 is brought up? It's not. Every single sermon, though, they talk about resurrection. Resurrection. Resurrection is when you and I will one day hear our name, and Jesus will rise us from the grave on this renewed earth in a physical body like the body he had when he was resurrected. He's simply the first fruits of what you and I will eventually step into. You will get a physical body. You will be you. There will be things about you that are recognizable. Now, maybe some of the things you don't like, you can negotiate. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. But you'll have a very real resurrected body. Jesus eats, Jesus high-fives his disciples, Jesus walks through walls. You figure it out. I don't know. But it's a physical body. That is the hope of followers of Jesus. It's why um, Jesus' followers have been accused of being materialistic. We believe that matter lasts forever, that God looks on his creation and goes, it's so good, I refuse to let it go. So, what happens after we die? I'm going to focus mostly on phase one, but if you want to read about phase two, you can read Revelation 21 and 22. You can read the last portion of the book of Isaiah. These are new heaven, new earth passages. But for you and I, for those of us who have lost loved ones recently, what are they doing? Where are they? Um, The Apostle Paul gives us this hint in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 8, and here's what he says. He says, and we are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body or absent from the body and what? Present with the Lord, at home with the Lord. He says this again in writing to the church at Philippi. He says, I'm torn between the two, between living and ministering to you and this church and dying and going home to be with Jesus. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better By far. And here's the truth, friends. We don't know a lot, but we do know this, that heaven will be defined by God's presence. And in his presence will be joy unspeakable. God is the most joyful being ever in all of creation. And we will be in his presence. Heaven will not be boring. Heaven will not be depressing. Heaven's the absence of everything bad, everything painful, everything evil, and it's the presence of everything good and everything holy and everything glorious. Now, look up at me for a second. That is wonderful news if, and only if, we want what's beautiful, what's holy, what's glorious. What's pure, what's true, what's righteous? Here's the way that Gary Moon says it. It's a really fascinating idea. Here's what he says. Not only will death not separate us from God, it will actually usher us into his presence. Some have suggested that the fires of heaven are twice as hot as the fires of hell. Because we will be in the inescapable presence of God and the immense truth of an all-permeating, falsehood-undermining, fear-eradicating, and evil-obliterating actuality. Oh, come on, Gary. Here's what he's saying. If we want to hold on to our evil, if we want to hold on to our violence, if we want to hold on to our unjustness, then heaven might feel a little bit like hell because the glory and beauty and perfection of God will shine on us in heaven. See, the prophet Isaiah gets this. You just have to read through Isaiah chapter six, the first few verses of Isaiah, and he's called up, he has this vision into the heavenly realm, and the angels are singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the whole earth. He goes, everything is bathed in your glory. And then he goes, Oh, crud! What am I doing here? What am I doing here? Because I'm a man of unclean lips and I live amongst people of unclean lips and my my eyes have seen the glory of the king. And catch this. An angel comes and takes this coal, flies over and sears his lips. See, See, heaven is a place where Evil is exposed and eradicated in the presence of God, in the presence of God. Heaven is a place where if we haven't grown to love Jesus' way and cherish his love, life in his presence might feel a little bit like hell. Dallas Willard used to say, I'm quite sure that God will allow everyone into heaven who can possibly stand it. Because it's about being with God. Holy, pure, and it's the surrender that allows us to enter into his presence. The best way to, you want to prepare for heaven? You should want to. If you plan on being there forever, you want to prepare for heaven? Well, one of the ways that you prepare for heaven, the main way you prepare for heaven is by beginning to live in his kingdom now. Learning to cultivate life with Jesus. Prepare for heaven by saying, God, I don't like that I'm an angry person. Prepare for heaven by saying, my lust, this lust needs to get out of my life. Prepare for heaven by praying for those who persecute you and loving even your enemies. Prepare for heaven by seeking the heart and way of Jesus. Because as Jesus says, eternal life is this, that you would know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's eternal life. God period. That's it. So what will we do in heaven? What will we do in heaven? Well, we get a number of pictures in Revelation chapter 4 and 5. Now, this isn't resurrection yet. This is current heaven, temporary heaven, heaven right now says this in Revelation chapter 5, verse 13. And this is John writing, he said, Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. See, we have some scenes where it says that people sing in heaven and others, if you don't like singing, um, this should give you a little bit of solace, a little bit of encouragement. Some people just say it. They're like, I don't have a great voice, God. Can I just say it? And God's like, I guess so, right? We've already got a harmony going on. It's wonderful. Great. But they're declaring praise. We have other passages that say, on repeat is this anthem, holy, holy, holy. Holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. Now, just time out. Let's just break out of sermon mode for a second and let your imagination just go there. That scene is happening right this moment. They're gathered. They're worshiping. but I don't think it's going to be like some cosmic, divine, unending church service. Some of you might go, praise God. (laughs) Because, Ryan, your sermons are long, but an eternal sermon. Dear Lord, do they at least give us a snack when we come in the door? I don't think that... We need to break worship out of just what happens here if we're going to have a view of heaven. Have you ever climbed a 14er for sunrise? And as the sun crept over the horizon, you just got like chills that just went down over your whole body, and you had this realization like, man, God, like, we were created for beauty and for moments like this. Or maybe you dug your toes into the sand looking over at the Pacific Ocean as the sun took a dive down over the horizon, and it started to fade to black, but before that, it was just this explosion of color. And you went, oh, Or maybe you gathered around a long table with really good food and really good drinks and you had a conversation with people and there wasn't any bickering or arguing. I know it sounds weird, it's possible, it can happen. And then, and you got done with dinner and you just said, thank God it's moments like that. Moments like that that we were created for. You know what we call that when we respond by saying, God, thank you? That's called worship. Worship. And heaven is a place of worship. It's a place where we get to experience things like sunrises on mountains and things like beaches and things like great meals with good friends and good conversation. It's places where we get to experience the things in this earth where we go, man, that's beautiful, that's amazing. And God says, that's just a shadow of what's to come. Heaven's not less real than earth. Heaven is more real, more real. We'll just have the awareness that God is the giver of it all. So everything we do and everything we enjoy will be worship. It's not one cosmic unending worship service. It's life with the giver of it at the center and our hearts recognizing this is gift. This is gift. Heaven will be a place that is filled, filled with worship. So here's a question many people ask. Will we do anything other than sing? Sorry, Aaron. Yes, we will. Worship is always more than singing. It's rarely less, but it's always more. And so what will we do in addition to sing? I'm glad you asked that, because Revelation chapter 6 has this short little three-verse stanza that gives us this picture of what's happening in the heavenly realm. Have you ever wondered, like, what's going on up there other than worship? Here's a little bit of a hint. Here's what it says. Chapter 6 of Revelation verse 9. And when he opened the fifth seal, John, this is John writing, he says, And I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God. Just a quick time out. So these people carry the identity that they had on earth into heaven. They are who they were. You are who you will be. The only thing you take into heaven is the person that you're becoming, which should make our formation all the more important, should it not, right? The only thing we take into heaven is who we are becoming. It says, and they were slain because of the word of God and the testimony that they'd maintained. So people are looking at them in heaven going, their faith is unbelievable, unreal. And they called out in a loud voice, so, so they gave their life for the gospel, and now they've been healed. So there's healing in heaven. They're raising their voice again in heaven. They're saying praise in heaven. But then they're doing this, how long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Now, some people picture heaven like you die and then God sort of wipes out your brain, puts some sort of heaven chip in you, and now you're like, I get it all now. Wonderful. Great. I understand everything. Now, for those of us who are learners, for those of us who love books and love growing, I'm going, that doesn't sound like heaven to me. Like, I want to explore. I want to learn. I want to grow. Good news. You will. These folks, these martyrs, are looking on at God and they're saying, God, I don't get it. I don't understand. Why aren't you avenging the evil that's being done, which is also an interesting statement because one of the main questions we have for God now is, why do you allow evil to continue to exist? You know what one of the main questions for God in heaven is? Why do you allow evil to continue to exist? We don't get it. And so when you get to heaven, catch this, you will be sinless covered by the blood of Jesus, redeemed to step into his presence, but you will be incomplete. So Jesus was sinless, yes? And the scriptures say really clearly in Hebrews chapter five, verse eight, he learned obedience through suffering. He learned obedience. He's perfect and sinless, and yet he's learning. He's learning his entire life. And in heaven, you'll be learning You'll be exploring. You will be growing. You will be changing. You'll be developing more and more into the image of God these people they have desires each of them was given a white robe so they have some sort of physicality or this is just a a picture a metaphor that's being painted and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants their brothers and sisters who were killed had uh, they were killed just as they had been now how many of you have been told that heaven is outside of the realm of time I I was told that turns out not the case They are told to wait in heaven. Now, if there's no time, what are they waiting for? (laughs) Not only that, but catch this, catch this. Not only that, but these martyrs, these people who have lost their life are in heaven and they're able to look down on what's going on on earth. They're able to see it. And they go, God, we don't get it. And he just does this like Jesus juke, and he's like, Yeah, 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 okay, just trust me, just wait. That's his answer. But they can see what's going on, they're healed. They have desire, they have longing. And eventually one day in the new heaven, new earth and resurrected bodies, we will get to participate with God in the ruling um, and sort of carrying of his creation in the way that Adam and Eve and you and I were always designed to do. We'll be caretakers that move forward the glory and name and beauty of God for all of eternity. We will work one day in new heaven and new earth. We will take the gifts that God's planted inside of us and surrender them to his glory and his name, and he will use those to beautify and accentuate his creation. Yes! I don't know if that happens in temporary heaven. Like, I sort of picture my mom, who was this crafter, and she just loved making stuff. And I just wonder, um, December 1st, she will have been in heaven for five years, and I wonder if she's been, like, working on quilts or blankets To give to her family when they get there. Like she collected junk and made beautiful things out of it down here. I'm not sure if she can find junk in heaven. But I'm pretty sure she's creating because that's who she was. And who she was is who she is. If I could summarize what heaven will be like in one word, it'll be we will live. We will live. Heaven will be enriched through our participation. Dallas Willard used to say that when each of us enter eternity, we will only take one thing with with us, and it's the most valuable asset we could ever possess, the sum of our lives, who we are becoming. I'm running out of time. One of the questions that I'll get often is, will we remember things in heaven? Well, here's the deal. You and I will stand before, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we will stand before the judgment seat of God to give an account of our life, to give an account of what we did, the gift that we call life. And here's, you will have to remember things at that point. I would submit to you, our memory in heaven is way better than our memory is now. It will not be worse. It will actually be better. But the other question we often wrestle with is will we remember people in heaven? Will there be reunions Well, just read 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. It says that together we will be called up to meet with God where we will together worship him. Heaven is a place of togetherness. It's enriched through relationship, but it's also enriched through, sorry, participation, and it's deepened through relationships. It was an astounding discovery to me to find out in reading through Genesis 1 and 2 You have this rhythm in Genesis 1. God creates and it's good. God creates and it's good. And then at the end of it, as the end of his creation, he creates and he says, it's very good. He high-fives himself, which you can do if you're God. And then we read in Genesis chapter 2, whoa, 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 whoa. It's not good. Before sin enters the world, he goes, it's not good. What's not good? That Adam, or human, would be alone. Now, if it's not good for human beings to be alone on earth, is it good for them to be alone in heaven? No. You are who you are, and you'll be who you will be. It's not good here, and it's not good there, Heaven will not be solitary confinement. Heaven will be relationship restored and whole and beautiful and new. And for some of us, we might get there and we might see people we thought I didn't think you were going to be here. (laughs) And I owe you an apology. I'm serious. It's it's not that um, there won't be baggage that we carry in. It's just that we will see God in a way that will allow us to receive His forgiveness and also extend it to others. There will be reconciliation because there will be justice. Finally, what will heaven feel like? No, I don't know exactly. You can come on up. But Jesus says this He says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. And you go, well, Jesus, that's easy for you to say. And he says back to you, actually, I'm walking to the cross. It's not as easy as you think. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be with me where I am. Heaven will feel like that pair of jeans that you put on and go, that fits just right. Pre-Thanksgiving jeans. Wow. Heaven heaven will be, heaven will be. It'll feel like finally coming home. That's what it'll feel like. The comfort, the welcome, the place where you can be yourself, the place, ideally, home is the place where you come just as you are and you are loved extravagantly and beautifully. That's what heaven will be. It'll be the place that shines on all of our imperfections and refines them and reshapes them, where we let go of all of the things that prevented us from walking with God. Heaven will be great meals, good friends, amazing conversations, all based around God's presence with us. I love the way that Donald Bloch put it, and he said this, our greatest affliction is not anxiety or even guilt, but rather homesickness, a nostalgia or ineradicable yearning to be at home with God. If you've ever desired, ever desired, like after a long trip or vacation, I just can't wait to be home, to sleep in my own bed, to eat my own food, to just have our own place, that's what heaven will be like. We've tasted shadows here. But there, there, we will experience it fully. The world says you can never go home again. What God says is you never have to leave home. You never have to leave home. I don't know where I read it this week, but somewhere I read this quote that just grabbed my heart and and it said, I've never been to heaven, but I miss it. Like Eden is in our bones. Heaven is in our bones. And I believe that every person in this room, lean in with me for just one more moment. I believe that every person in this room was created for this. That as we talk about heaven, even if you don't believe it, you want to. There's something transcendent about being human that recognizes we were never meant to die. We were meant for life eternal and life with God. But just like in the garden, God gives Adam and Eve the choice. Are you going to choose to live in relationship with me or are you going to choose to reject me and Go your own way and do your own thing. God has not changed. He still gives you and I the choice. The choice now is based on Jesus's life, death, burial, and resurrection, where he, through his own body and blood, is reuniting heaven and earth, bringing the two back together. And I think if he was here today and he were giving a message on heaven, here's the way he'd end it. Here's what he'd say. He would say this. Repent turn like you don't have to live with your hell now we're in eternity repent for the kingdom of God the kingdom of heaven is at hand I've done everything you need to usher you into my presence will you let go of your hells and enter in to my kingdom love the way that C.S. Lewis said it. He said, I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find until after death. But I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of my life to press on to that other country and to help others do the same. My prayer is that you've been encouraged to press on and that you'd encourage others to do the same. Home, friends, is waiting. And his name is Jesus. Let's pray. So Jesus, we can't wrap our minds around what that experience and life will be like. We only know that it'll be life more abundant, more full, and more real than anything we've ever dreamed of tasting here and now. And so we just want to say thank you. For creating us for that glory and for redeeming us and making it possible through your life, death, burial, resurrection that this new world is now crashing into existence. And we want to let go of everything that would hinder us from walking into your kingdom both now and forever. We want you, Jesus. We want life. We want love. We want peace. We want goodness. We want wholeness. We want joy unending, unspeakable in your presence. We want it. We want it. Stir our hearts to want it more. In Jesus' name we pray.